This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the you're-it moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the latest edition of Leader ReadyCast. This is Eric McNulty, your ReadyCast host. And today we're discussing the evolving role of non-governmental organizations in disaster preparedness and response. Joining me is John Anzalone, Vice President for International Services at the American Red Cross. John is an alumnus of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative and was the recipient of our 2017 Meta Leader of the Year Award. John, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Eric. And we appreciate you being here this morning. So to start us off uh, and to give our listeners a sense of what you do, tell us about your experiences in 2017. I know, I know as I follow them remotely, it seems like you were everywhere all the time responding to something. So give us a walk through what you do. Yeah, incredible year. So I'm, I have the privilege of working at the American Red Cross. And last year was uh, an intense year, not only here in the U.S., but also around the globe. And while I was was leading our international portfolio, we, of course, had our most costly disaster year in U.S. history, according to NOAA. And, you know, I found myself right back into kind of both worlds, both a domestic responder role where I was down in Houston, Texas, deployed for Hurricane Harvey, while still maintaining readiness and our American Red Cross posture with Nepal's uh, flooding. We started to see this massive population movement starting to sprout again in Bangladesh, uh, the Rohingyas coming from Myanmar. Um, on top of, of many others. So, you know, physically for me to be able to, to deploy down to Hurricane Harvey and experience the magnitude of that storm while seeing what was going on, continuing to go on worldwide was cer- certainly a, a record setting year for me. Absolutely. And certainly the Red Cross w- was active across all these disasters, which has to challenge the organization in some way because it was an extraordinary year uh, and you're everywhere all the time. So, I wanted to ask you, has the role of the American Red Cross evolved in terms of what the services you deliver, how you deploy? Do people look at you for the same things they did, say, 5, 10, or 20 years ago, or has it changed? I'd say in many ways it has stayed the same. There are these odd nuances that I often talk with with the public about. So here in the United States, we're one of the the few non-governmental organizations that has a congressional charter. Um, it's this weird place because we don't have the, the luxury of saying, you know, we're going to respond to this one, but not to this one. And our congressional charter actually talks about our requirement to respond to disasters within the United States. It's a little bit different overseas. So in that sense, I say that it's the same since 1905 when Congress first chartered us. I think some of the differences, amazingly, there are a enormous amount of other organizations that have the same desire to alleviate human suffering. So the coordination aspects certainly have changed as we look at the growth of other nonprofits or other organizations that are within the disaster space, all of which, by the way, are needed because the human need far outpaces the resources available to provide services. So 
but coordination is a challenge, right? Anytime that we have a, a number of actors within a geographical space or even within this overall umbrella of humanitarian assistance, I'd say that's the largest element that I've seen changing. And then the only other caveat that I would put on it is just the, the realities of how the media are seeing aid organizations, both government and non-government, um, I think has evolved with social media and the way in which expectations have risen. And I think one of the things we have seen, at least I have, I have seen, and I'm sure you have because you're in the field more than I am, that there are a number of sort of startup organizations. I mean, it's one thing, you know, there are the, the established long-serving organizations like yours that everybody knows, but then it seems that there are sort of ad hoc organizations, I think back to Sandy with Occupy Sandy, folks providing assistance that way. What have you learned about leading that environment with a, a vast array of public, private, nonprofit, sometimes ad hoc organizations, citizen response organizations working simultaneously? What's critical for it to go smoothly? I think of one of the many, many principles that I learned through NPLI, which is no ego, no blame, as well as this sense of a unified mission. And working with other organizations isn't about a command and control structure. One of my favorite books is from Ari Brofman, Starfish and the Spider. And it really talks about leadership-less organizations or leadership-less enterprises. And it gets into this whole concept that MPLI also discusses very well around swarm intelligence and the principles that really guide unity of mission. So, you know, you mentioned, Eric, Occupy Sandy. My experience working side by side with them was amazing. We saw that their mission was truly to help people. And it wasn't to get in the way of emergency responders or established organizations but they were certainly trying to find ways to do it with less bureaucracy. And it was beautiful to see that shared mission, the processes that we followed versus smaller organizations such as theirs may have looked differently, but nonetheless, it was a shared mission. And really being able to work side by side with these organizations is a privilege and, and trying to really divorce it from what I often talk about is the fifth C within the National Voluntary organizations active in disaster. So they talk about coordination and collaboration and communication. And they also talk about this sense of really coordinating as entities, but often there's this hidden sea of competition within the space. And I, I try to remind myself that is um, the unhealthiest sea of all five, um, where we really should be focusing on that unified mission. But it is to reiterate, I think the needs are far outpacing any of the resources that government or non-governmental agencies have. Um, so we've got to find ways to work together. And those leadership principles really help ground me in remembering that we are focusing on a unified mission. And the, the competition piece is interesting that, that you bring up because Obviously, those nonprofit organizations are reliant upon funding. So you want to have a certain amount of visibility. You want to have a certain amount of tangible impact that you can then go to donors and say, look at the good things we did. Please give us more so we can do more of this. That's sort of in inevitable because of the way we fund such organizations. Do you find that gets overcome quickly on the ground with the people who are deployed, who are the responders on the ground, who see a mission right in front of them? Is that more of a of headquarters thing or is there competition on the ground as well? I think it's both. Certainly, I've seen a lot of positive changes over the last 10 years where the C-suite of organizations, headquarters level, executive directors or CEOs are really coming together to talk about shared value, shared missions. 
And how that translates into the field, I see being the, the sticky part. So we have 300,000 volunteers that many have grown up in the Red Cross as Red Cross youth, or they come to the Red Cross through a service experience, whether they needed a blood transfusion or served in the armed forces where American Red Cross may have played a role in providing emergency communications. So sometimes it's bringing those shared values of meta-leadership or shared values of swarm intelligence to the most common denominator. So I firmly believe that while the coordination our CEO will talk with Save the Children and Carolyn Mills and has a great relationship with the C-suite of the National Volunteer Organizations Active in Disaster. The, the, the more replicability we have on the ground, um, the better. And I think that's probably the hardest part where people want to represent uh, their organization well. They have pride. But going back to that principle of no ego, no blame, which is one of my favorite stories growing up as a Red Cross youth. I used to love going out on disaster responses where I served side by side with Salvation Army. And it was, it was a joint venture where we understood each other's roles. Um, it didn't lead to competition. And quite frankly, um, when we had opportunities to talk to the media or to talk with the United Ways that were funding us, I have found that more often than not, that beauty of what they see does not lead to one being funded more so than the other, but rather the sense that the system is working and that we are not competing for resources, but rather trying to find a win-win situation. And just for our listeners, for clarification, uh, Jono has a couple of times now mentioned this idea of swarm leadership or swarm intelligence. That is a framework that came out of work that we did here at the NPLI after the Boston Marathon bombings, when we were researching and looking at why did the response go so well. There was almost seamless coordination and collaboration across not only the, the government sector, federal, state, and local, as well as a multiple local uh, jurisdictions involved here in Boston, but also with the business sector and the nonprofit sector. And uh, we came up with five principles. You can find a paper of them on our website. Uh, the URL you'll get at the end of this broadcast. But this notion of unity of effort, uh, unity of purpose, they've got a single focus, that people are generous both in their thinking and in their actions, that there is no ego, no blame, that people are able to demonstrate emotional intelligence and keep themselves in check, that people stay in their lanes and do their job and help others stay in their lanes. And that requires a certain amount of confidence, as Jonah was mentioning, that the other people can do their jobs so there's not lane creep. And all of this is built on a foundation of trust-based relationships, which is done intentionally here in Boston because you had a lot of the same agencies and people working together year after year made it possible. It's a bit harder for organizations like the Red Cross or any other when you deploy someplace that you're not all the time. You may have some people who are local, some people you've seen before from Salvation Army or Save the Children, but other people you've never seen before. So uh, building that trust is, is critical, but it can be a challenge in the short term and I think, you know, John, one of the things that sticks out to me is you mentioned this notion of predictability. Uh, and I think that's one area where we as a country could do a better job of just laying out. And Envoad has certainly started this, that who do we know is going to show up? The Red Cross has to show up. They're a, the congressional mandate says you have to be there. What other organizations do we have a you know, 90 plus percent confidence are going to show up and then 80, 70, 60 all the way down uh, to the people who are hey, we're just going to show up because this one happens to be in our backyard, so it matters to us and we're going to show up. And how, does a, how do we better coordinate and collaborate? And I think if you put the, 
the known pieces in place and see how they fit together. You have fewer gaps between them and fewer overlaps as well. And then all you're left with is sorting through the, uh, the last minute additions to the response, uh, response enterprise. John, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that idea of could be better coordinated ahead of time by knowing, uh, you know, again, who's going to show up, who we think is going to show up and who might show up. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm a firm believer in the beauty of our emergency management system here in the U.S. I know often people will critique it. We see a lot of news around different levels of emergency management response efforts in the news, whether it's FEMA through the Department of Homeland Security, state emergency management, or local. But the system is amazing. And the history of that system stemming from the civil defense days and the Civil Defense Act is one that I'm proud of. And leading our international portfolio, countries around the world look to us as a way to extract best practices. So to your point, Eric, I do believe that the more non-governmental organizations are conversant in the National Incident Management System, which is the guiding language of emergency management here in the United States, stemming from some of the um, uh, lessons learned after 9-11, as well as really integrating into the most common denominator of the emergency management framework, which is local emergency management and states, since states are sovereign entities in our beautiful U.S. Constitution. And Eric, where I see that being difficult is organizations not knowing the language. And you referenced that national voluntary organizations active in disaster or national VOAD have come a long way. And I believe that we are, we are doing really well, but we have a lot further to go because national VOAD only has approximately 55 member organizations like Salvation Army, Red Cross, Catholic Charities, and the others. And the, I think the, the difficulty is smaller organizations that may not be part of an umbrella organization whether it's Occupy Sandy or the beauty of communities just coming together and creating a Facebook group and saying, we want to do good because we're unhappy with the system. It's not fast enough. It's not working. And yet really being disassociated with the emergency management framework. And a lot of people think that's bureaucratic. But what I see this allowing us to do is to all play from the same playbook or at least different chapters of the same playbook and to have a common understanding of resources so that we're not duplicating resources, especially for nonprofits that rely upon the generosity of donor dollars. We just don't have the luxury to simply throw out the playbook and say, we're going to do it our way because we don't like the system and, and, and hope that we're not duplicating. I have a number of case studies where the playbook was thrown out and nonprofits really found themselves all in the same place on relatively smaller disasters disassociated from emergency manager. And there was severe duplication of services, which not only is inefficient for donor dollars, quite frankly, but I call it the 10 knocks on the door. So if I'm a disaster survivor and I get 10 knocks on the door from 10 different agencies offering me 10 different things, or possibly even 10 of the same things, um, it's not a user-friendly experience for somebody who's undergone a crisis. No, I think it's really important, and I'm glad you brought up NIM as a national incident management system because you're right. It does give a common framework and at least a common language uh, with which to operate across organizational boundaries. And I think what, what I have seen is that those who are within NIMS or within ICS, incident command system, in a given jurisdiction, they tend to forget those who are outside, and those who are outside don't quite understand what's happening inside that circle. And it is, it's a structure. It's not meant to be 
bureaucratic, but it does give some basic organizations, though people who can, can plug in more easily, at least that's the idea, that there are some defined roles within it and responsibilities so that you make sure things get done. And uh, it would be great to see and Boad grow to more organizations and more organizations also uh, at least familiarize themselves with the basics because that's how the governmental organizations are going to be talking and interacting with each other. Uh, that doesn't obviate them for, for good behavior. Certainly we've written here about how uh, behavioral elements and part of what we teach in, in meta leadership is ability to you know, regulate your emotions and, and know how to be productive within, even within the, the, the most or the best structured system that being calm and together and making clear decisions and communicating well, that's always going to help you. Uh, and being you know, panicked and not making decisions and not communicating well is going to hurt you. But it's, so it's those two things. And I think that uh, I hope that more organizations, again, familiarize themselves at least with the basics. So when someone talks about an incident commander or some other role, they have a, have a clue what's being talked about. Absolutely. And, and I'd add, Eric, that the point you made around sometimes that NIMS or incident command structure sometimes isn't the most accessible in non-governmental organizations. And I, I've seen both positive progress in that, but also we still have some work to do. Uh, one of my favorite roles for about four years, I was uh, working for the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and my primary role was to integrate voluntary organizations or non-governmental organizations into the emergency management framework. They called them voluntary agency liaisons. They still exist today, and I think one of the most critical valued roles for human service agencies like mine, and having advocates within the federal government that are saying, Look, the Stafford Act, which is the guiding legislation that formed FEMA right after the executive order in 1978-1979, actually has language in there about what we today call whole community, which is this idea that the federal government or state government can't do it alone. So even dating back to then, there was this recognition that non-governmental organizations, because of the local trust they have in their communities and the local knowledge of the cultures and less uh, regulatory burden, can provide an emergency response. And the voluntary agency liaisons in FEMA really helped to integrate these resources into the federal framework. But also, there's been an enormous growth in the number of state voluntary agency liaisons that sit within a local and state emergency management, help find better entryways for smaller organizations that may not be part of the large structure. And being able to say you have a value and not to get frustrated with the incident command system and to be able to coordinate those efforts in a way that is systematized, not only during disasters, but these voluntary agency liaisons, most importantly, are left of boom or left of the event and trying to help in preparedness, which I'm a firm believer in, in building one of the principles that you talked about, Eric, in swarm intelligence, which is the foundation of relationships. Amazingly, uh, the more events we go to, the more we're gonna trust each other. And if we start before the event and we know each other and we trust each other, I'm a firm believer that that leads to more harmony within the emergency itself. Yeah, absolutely, I think those, those vows or voluntary, Agency li liaisons um, can play an important role in sort of translation and trust building across those boundaries. And again, I saw this uh, all the way back in, in Sandy where I was working. I was deployed with the FEMA innovation team and saw some of their folks working with a number of organizations that self-deployed. And it really was essential to have someone who understood both the formal side and they 
understood NIMS and ICS and how that worked and who was involved, but they also understood how the other organizations worked so they could translate back and forth because ultimately there are always going to be gaps in any response. And if you can find a local organization or anyone who's shown up who can fill a gap for you, you ought to be taking advantage of it as best you can. And that translation role is really, really essential. And I think it's overlooked sometimes. You know, if there is not a vowel in place, or the organizations that didn't know there was a vowel there to talk to in the first place, but it's it's really really critical. You've mentioned volunteers a couple of times. I wanted to know, you know, you know what have you learned in meta leadership? We talk about leading up and leading down to so vertical leadership about leading down to a team that's populated largely by volunteers. How do you get them to have unity of mission? How do you motivate them? How do you keep them well organized and functioning? And then secondly. How do you lead up to your bosses when, when they may be geographically far away and you're on the ground seeing what's happening? How have you found it's effective to help them fully understand the, the, the situation and make good decisions? So the, the beauty of volunteers I, is largely leading through influence. And it's, it's one of my major takeaways from MPLI is really differentiating what it means to lead through influence versus what it leads to mean or means to lead through authority. And our volunteers, although they fall within a system and technically they sign off on a volunteer handbook where in theory authority could be used, it really goes back to this concept of getting further through influence, through the value of seeing a shared mission. We at the American Red Cross guide that influence by really grounding ourselves in these seven fundamental principles, which is not unique to the American Red Cross. It's guided our international movement where there's 191 Red Cross or Red Crescent societies in virtually every country. So concept of humanity, impartiality, neutrality, independence, voluntary service, which is why we are a volunteer run organization, unity and universality. I often bring those fundamental principles into disaster relief operations where I've had large teams of volunteers. So in Houston, there are 9,000 plus volunteers over the life of that disaster. And that's, that's a large volunteer presence where you know, volunteers choose when they want to go and when they don't want to go. So the fact you have that many volunteers on the ground Sure, authority may work in our concept of operations, but bringing it back to unity of mission, bringing it back to our seven fundamental principles, when we have really sticky wickets that we're trying to solve. In Houston, an example of that, we had some real difficulties in some of the shelters where elected officials did not want us to shelter a certain type of person or people. And our volunteers were really struggling with that. And as we were as an organization, And really working through that to find a solution that did not violate our fundamental principle of neutrality because we will shelter undocumented, we will shelter individuals that may not be of a certain um, faith tradition. We do not regard classes as an entity in which we discriminate in sheltering. So that ability to really come up with a shared vision for our leaders as well as our volunteers really drives that action. So leading through influence is what I would say is that tagline. I think leading up is, quite frankly, still the same. Obviously, I don't have authority over my boss, but really leading through influence, leading through my actions and my behaviors. And most importantly, one of the small sheets of paper, try not to carry a lot of paper around, that I always carry in my bag are my top 10 values. And my top 10 values, that was an exercise that I did years ago, 
really help to ground who I am as an individual so that if for whatever reason I'm in the middle of a crisis, I'm lacking sleep, I probably haven't eaten for you know, six or seven hours, so I'm getting a little bit cranky. I have a subtle reminder when I'm, when I'm taking notes. I'm starting to feel like one of the principles that we talk about in MPLI, which is amygdala shock or going to the basement um, in this, this place where I just know I probably shouldn't be making decisions when my brain's not functioning well. I pull out those values just to make sure that when I'm leading up, I'm really mindful of, of the true core principles that guide my humanitarian actions. And then some very tactical things, Derek. I, I often, any new boss that I start with, I want to know what their communication style is, what their expectations are. They're all the basics that I think good leading up looks like. And also really trying to understand what pressures they're under, what's asking them to possibly ask certain questions or, ter- or take certain activities uh, into consideration. Um, and then lastly, I would say trust. I've always said I would never work for anybody that I didn't trust. And uh, the beauty of what I believe brings people to places like the American Red Cross is because they believe in the mission. And that tends to attract people with amazing integrity and amazing experiences. So leading up for me really goes back to I may not like every decision, but I trust because I know that they're often trying to make decisions with incomplete information and knowing in the end they believe in the mission. So their ability to be trusted, I think, is critical in leading up. Absolutely. I think that, and you've mentioned principles several times, and I think that is absolutely essential for any organization to be really clear on principles because that lets people act in a way that's consistent with the values of the organization, but it also gives them independence to make, make decisions on the ground when they have to. More Principles are much more effective than the four-inch binder with all the rules and regulations, in my experience. Now, as you are an MPLI alum, and we're proud to have you as one, I have to ask you our two favorite questions. The first is, what did we teach you that you found particularly valuable or useful? And secondly, what didn't we teach you that you wish we had? The second one's a tough one. I'll tell you, the first one is not tough. I've mentioned uh, a couple in in our conversation, Eric, this concept of what are the guiding principles of meta-leadership. Certainly a subset of that is swarm intelligence. Uh, One of my favorite uh, tools that meta-leadership really helped me think through is what you refer to as uh, the pop doc. So this idea that we're always trying to perceive and orient and predict ourselves to the environments in which we're in and then decide, operationalize, and communicate that. That module, that principle, that guiding philosophy has really changed the way in which I orient myself, not only during times of disaster, but quite frankly, um, to the organizational context in which I work every day. So that was certainly one that I parked and then I've mentioned uh, swarm intelligence. Those are, those are really big modules that, that I had. It wasn't just two hours of my life. Um, they're, they're, they're defining moments for me and, and reading more, learning more, and really applying those practices within my profession at the American Red Cross and, quite frankly, even outside with other civic activities that I do. I would say that what you didn't teach is a, a struggle for me because I felt uh, fulfilled at the end. And I've shared this with you before, Eric, and, and your colleagues. I have to admit, I was really suspicious. Another leadership course, like, what's this going to look like? And it was on day one at about noon when I told myself, this is different. This is truly different. And I remember writing my boss over the lunch hour and saying, 
hey, I remember telling you that, that I'd probably be monitoring emails and, you know, still try, try to stay connected during, um, during the course, but I'm going to change my mind if that's okay, because this is different. And this is something I really want to be present for, because I think it will have an impact on how I lead as a professional and how I step into really tough crises and feel like I have some tools help me get through it. So I'm not going to park any deficiencies at this point. And I know that sounds like an easy answer out. I will say what is curious for me are things that are evolving over time with the changing kind of frameworks that FEMA's talking about, new administrator, new case studies. That to me would be uh, something that I'd be very curious in learning more about. But that simply is not a result of you not thinking of it. I think it's just a matter of time as the environment in which we operate changes. Well, thank you for those kind words. We appreciate it. Although I'm sure you'll call me back in a couple of hours and say, oh, I remember what you didn't teach me. That's okay. (laughs) We're always trying to evolve the model here and evolve the curriculum to make sure we, we get as many useful things as possible to people like yourself. My final question to you today is, I come across a lot of young people who want to get involved in this field in some way. What advice do you have for them as the steps they should take? I'd say experience, both paid or unpaid, certainly allowing yourself the curiosity of trying different things. So whether it's a novice, somebody going into an emergency management program at a university or out of university, I think having exposure at the most local level all the way up to whatever level they aspire to work at. My, my favorite positions have been field positions. I love a headquarters environment, but give me some field activity where I can see the mission in play. And having the ability to plug in and experience that, whether through internships, sign up for a um, volunteer experience. I will say the specific recommendation for anybody that's in government service, just to throw their name into a volunteer pool for an experience and vice versa for my voluntary agency colleagues to throw yourself into a government operating environment, whether it's for a day or for two weeks, if you're able to shadow I think it really does go back to creating this foundation of trust. I learned so much with my four years of FEMA. Growing up in Red Cross, I started as a volunteer in 1994 as a youth volunteer, that I'm never going to leave the Red Cross. And I had a four-year break where FEMA invited me to be one of the voluntary agency liaisons. I gave myself that opportunity knowing it was outside of my comfort zone, but I got to tell you, I have so much respect for that federal agency by seeing the great work that they do and by understanding the frameworks, regulatory frameworks in particular in which they have to operate. And so my, my short advice is throw yourself into experiences that, that might bring you outside your comfort zone, but always bring it back to your core values. My friends that are in consulting, they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because they believe in the mission and they believe in the way in which their mission impact can be seen on the front lines with their their professional experiences working as a consultant. My friends in government, they're obviously not doing it for the money either. And so really going back to that set of values, I think will guide individuals that are wanting to get into this field and trying to experience this uh, massive need, trying to fill this massive need that is out there with the increasing number of disasters and conflicts. Jono, thank you for that wisdom. And I think that idea of always being curious and getting out of your comfort zone is good advice for anyone at any stage of their career. The more you're learning, the greater impact you're going to have. 
And I want to thank Jono Anzalo for joining us on this edition of Leader ReadyCast. Again, Jono is Vice President for International Services at the American Red Cross. He's an alumnus of our MPLI Executive Education Program here at Harvard and was the recipient of our 2017 Meta Leader of the Year Award. To all of our listeners, your Eurit moment's going to come. Be ready to lead. Thank you. We'll catch you next time. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.